Think, debate, inspire. Debates on pressing global challenges. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the podcast series Think, Debate, Inspire of the Robert Bosch Academy. My name is Henry Althaka and I'm Senior Vice President at the Robert Bosch Stiftung. And I'm Pradnya Bivalkar from the Robert Bosch Academy. The Robert Bosch Academy is an institution of the Robert Bosch Stiftung and located in Berlin. The Academy offers international decision makers, opinion leaders and experts an opportunity for confidential exchanges and solution-oriented cooperation on issues of global relevance. With this podcast, we provide you insights into current debates of international significance in a vivid conversation with one of our fellows. And our guest for the first podcast episode is Kumi Naidu from South Africa, one of our most prolific Richard von Weizsäcker fellows. He has been a long-standing human rights and environmental activist, has served on the boards of many international organizations like Amnesty International, Greenpeace International, and he has been very vocal on various aspects of climate justice policy. In addition to his academic engagements at Arizona State and Oxford, he also currently serves on the International Council of Transparency International and as a global ambassador of Africans rising for justice, peace and dignity. Kumi was in Berlin as a Weizsäcker Fellow from September 21 to May 22. And in addition to his climate activism, Kumi has recently published a book with the beautiful title Letters to My Mother, The Making of a Troublemaker, and is currently getting ready for the launch of the second season of his own podcast series, Power, People and Planet. Welcome to the podcast, Kumi. Thank you so much and greetings to all of you and your listeners. It is great to hear you again. Um, in our conversation today, we plan to discuss a few key questions on climate change with you. And we want to start by talking about COP27. It has ended uh, last year and uh, there's a bit of a torn um, A reaction by the observers. Some are very disappointed because they have expected more to come out of it um, and others still feel that there's reason to rejoice because after much deliberation there was at least a loss and damage fund to aid countries that suffer most from climate change that was set up. What is your perspective on it? Are you What, what satisfies you? What makes you angry? Well, on the one hand, given the urgency of the moment that we find ourselves in, where extreme weather events on a drastic increase, where the data coming out from the science is telling a story of increasingly difficult uh, situations that we are facing. In fact, right now, the predictions from the IPCC, the reality is much worse on some key indicators. So giving all of this, you would have thought that they would have come to the struggle with a view of uh, that this COP in Egypt needs real ambition, real courage, and so on. But in fact, what we did have instead was business as usual. Having said that, I would honestly say that I did not expect to see the level of progress that we saw with regard to the loss and damage fund, because we know about how big the resistance historically has been to uh, even considering that seriously. So I would like to pay tribute to all the campaigners and activists who have stuck with this issue. And I think 
it's important, even though we make our overall assessment that the COP didn't deliver as much as it should have, we can safely say that there were certain victories, especially around loss and damage, that we need to acknowledge. However, we know that the loss and damage fund is a fund, right? And uh, we know that there's a green climate fund that we fought very hard and got that in place, but we've not got the, the delivery of uh, the actual money. So let's hope that in this case, given that people in developing countries are facing extreme levels of loss and damage already from extreme climate events, which they've had little to do, let's hope that that is delivered. So, so in a way, let's put it this way, in a one-liner, we went in with very low expectations and we probably got a little bit more than what most people thought we would get out of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we need to bank that, draw optimism from that and say that the struggle continues. I would just say, you know, we in the climate movement try to change this logic of putting all our eggs in the COP basket. So even with Paris in 2015, we never said the road to Paris. We always said the road through Paris, right? Saying that these COPs are moments, important moments to move the agenda forward, but they are not the end all and be all of the climate struggle. Yeah. So I think going back to what you just said, uh, Kumi, um, I'm going to pick up the thread on loss and damage fund. And in that context, the concept of climate justice often comes up. Another conversation that you recently had with one of the other Richard von Weizsäcker fellow, Samantha Gross, you mentioned that uh, the justified demand of less wealthy countries should not lead to them putting their heads in the sand and um, they should also cooperate when it comes to finding new steps ahead in terms of mitigating the effects of climate change. So do you think this is going to be a issue that is going to be around for a while or do you think people are ready to understand what needs to be done and how urgently it needs to be done? So it's important to note that uh, in 2009 in Copenhagen, for example, at that COP, the term climate justice did not have currency. Large parts of the climate movement in the global north had anxieties and were trying to block the use of that. Today, we're in a very, very different state. People recognize that the reason that we have a climate catastrophe and a climate disaster is because of climate injustice. The sad reality is that the people that are paying the first and most brutal price from climate impacts are not that the ones that contributed most historically and presently to carbon uh, you know, accumulation. So given all of that, right, we uh, have to recognize that we are now in a moment where at least there's a recognition that the climate question is not something that just happened by some natural forces, but it happened by human choice and by bad choices made by some powerful people that have benefited a few places and a few companies. And that's the legacy that we have to change. So I would say, though, there's also another term which is even more sort of, if you want, uh, uh, powerful, and that's the term climate apartheid. Because if you look at which parts of the world historically contributed to this problem and which parts of the world are paying the first and most brutal price, it gives you a very, very uncomfortable, you know, a very, very uncomfortable demographic picture. So we will not be able to move the agenda forward in the global south in particular, where our governments are constantly saying, well, those folks in the north, they created the problem. 
We're not going to change until they change. We are saying to our governments in the global south, you cannot bury your sand. You cannot ignore the fact that people are suffering more in the global south from climate impacts. And we need to make the changes fast and push for the resources to help us make those changes in recognition to the fact that injustices were done and those injustices now must be reversed and compensated for. Mm-hmm. Building up on what you just said, um, then one could also look at it like this, that climate change or the, the necessity to uh, act at the moment is also presenting uh, an oddly enriching opportunity for the global north and the global south to cooperate and work together globally in, in terms of... Um, going forward. But at the same time, we also see that there is also a lot of resistance from from affluent communities, if uh, if I were to put it that way, to bring in the changes that need to be brought in, uh, especially when it comes to just transitions, energy transitions. As we see in Europe right now, it is a big challenge considering a war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, what is happening and the whole energy crisis. So um, talking about just transitions and climate justice, what do you think needs to happen uh, for the global north, just transitions that they need to do in order for the global south then um, to follow the path? Or do you think the global south is far ahead in terms of bringing in the energy transitions and, and the global north could, you know, learn a little from what the global south is already doing? Thank you so much, Pivalka, for this question, because I think in this question lies a very important teachable moment for humanity, right? And that is we either deal with the climate catastrophe as a joint human problem that impacts all of us in North and South. It's true, people in the global South are paying the first and most brutal price, but ultimately nobody will be able to escape, right? And so in that context, it's really, important that we see, and I've been saying this even when I was at Greenpeace in 2009, uh, at the time of Copenhagen, that we got to see the climate struggle as an opportunity to turn things around. For far too long, we lived in a world that was divided by North and South, East and West, developed and developing, and so on. And we have to recognize that unless we come together as a global human family and treat this problem in a way in which we don't always look for winners and losers, we don't stand a chance. Now, there are many countries in the world who at a conceptual level, you know, accept this, right? But there is a big gap between accepting that this is obviously the right thing to do and translating that into policies and practice. And so the hope right now is that this growing recognition that what happens in one country is going to impact on another country means that there has to be a growing levels of people wanting to cooperate. But sadly, there are trends, as you point out, Vivalka, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, has changed, has set us back so much uh, in terms of we're seeing a spike of use of fossil fuels, and we also see countries who said we never go back, are going back, and, and so on. So. Um, I don't want us to be over-optimistic about where we are right now, but I do think that we've won the debate. The question is whether more and more policies that are coming in place, which we also welcome, uh, including around technology transfer to the global south, but 
we all know that there's still a huge time lag between policies adopted and policies implemented. And that's, you know, going to be what activism and people who are concerned about making real change happen. That's where the energies need to go to, I believe. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kumi. Um, you just said, you know, we all have to come together and we have to stop fighting along those uh, artificial lines, north, south, west, east, developed, undeveloped. Uh, I mean, this goes, I think, beyond climate change. This is true for many societal challenges that we are facing, of which climate change is undoubtedly the most urgent and uh, important one right now. In your fellowship here in Berlin, you investigated whether activism actually works, you know, and as someone who has I think, devoted his uh, entire life so far to activism. This is, was a painful question to ask. You know, why have we not seen more success of activist strategies in the past? And this, you know, questioning and self-critical questioning didn't only make you friends within the community, I think. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, we, we, we now so often see activists from different levels being part of discussions on various political challenges globally and nationally and they're sitting in you know these these ivory tower rooms and you know talk to presidents and prime ministers and chancellors and still often it seems like they're not getting their messages across or the actions um, implemented do they mistake access for influence uh, you know what, what what does need to change about activism to become more influential Thank you for this wonderfully well put question. And we, you know, Luisa Nunab, the leader of Fridays for, one of the leaders of Fridays for the Future in Germany, in a interview that we did together, she said, now is the time for us to move away from what she called handshake activism, mm -hmm. right? And handshake activism, she described correctly, so I think, as the efforts that have been put by civil society campaigners on a range of issues, not only climate, um, where in good faith we've gone and spent huge amounts of time engaging with uh, those who have power either in government or in the private sector. Mm -hmm. I am not saying that that kind of engagement doesn't have a place moving forward. I certainly believe it does, especially when the people in the room having the conversations are very clearly there because they have a serious constituency behind them. Not because they are so brilliant and uh, know the answer to a problem, not be because they've been in the environmental movement for 50 years and they have the answer to the problem, but because they have real people behind them uh, who are backing them to put those demands in those conversations and engagements with organized power, right? Whether it be corporate mm -hmm. power, whether it be political power. And so, I think that is critically important. But if I very honestly reflect on my 40 plus years of activism from grassroots to global and where I've engaged with local governments to global institutions like UN, World Bank and so on, I must in all honesty say to you that I did mistake access for influence far too often. Because far too often what was happening was we go into these engagements They know what we're going to say. We know what they're going to say. At the end of the conversation, they've ticked off a box saying civil society consulted. We've ticked off a box saying government or corporate sector lobbied upon and nothing changes, right? And of course, yes, nothing changes from a single engagement and so on. But what is needed right now is a recognition that politicians 
in democracy, certainly, but even in, as we saw in China recently, even in places where there's no democracy, when people mobilize and push, right, they can make changes happen. The way the COVID policy changes in China was incredible, mm. right? Whether it was good, bad, you know, that's another issue. But it shows that our political leaders only act with urgency when people say we urgently want something. And so right now, the space for engagement and so on is there. But clearly, that has not delivered the results that we needed over the last 50, 60 years. So I would very strongly say that civil society and campaigners have got the proportionality wrong. One, that we are making far too much investment in time, resources, travel, all of that from the return that we are getting out of it. And we need to be much more strategic. That doesn't mean I'm saying we should not engage. We must be more selective, uh, more authentic, make sure that the people we're talking to can feel somehow that we have thousands of people behind us. Otherwise, quite frankly, there's no reason why they should take us seriously. Kumi, you've often said that in addition to the government and the civil society who need to undergo a fundamental change for climate change to become bearable, it is also the people who need to undergo a fundamental change in their way of thinking. Often people are less motivated by fear than by hope. Is there a way to get people excited about the energy transition, to get them to believe that the future we are bound to transition into could be a positive one? Well, the naughty answer would be, surely people should get excited about their survival. When the survival is at stake, they should actually get excited. I mean, what can be more exciting than us getting excited about taking actions to ensure that we protect our children and their children's future? And that's why I always say to people, you know, the struggle is not about saving the planet. We continue on this mm. path that we're on. We will be gone. The planet will still be here. And truth be said, once we disappear as a species, the forests will grow back, the oceans will replenish and so on. So understand that this is an exciting moment. This is a mm. historical intersecting moment. What we choose to do, and, and that's why it's no joke to say that we are all living in the most consequential decade in humanity's history. What we choose to do in the next 10 years will determine what kind of future we'll have or whether we will have a future at all. That is what I believe is at, at stake in the next decade. So in this, people, ordinary citizens, mothers, fathers, parents, grandparents, uh, teachers, bricklayers, if we think that we are going to leave the survival of our children's future and their security to politicians and to business folks who have not been able to deliver a solution when in fact the opposite is true, that they have brought us to this point of danger, climate danger, we cannot be foolish enough to think that they are going to deliver unless they are guided, is a very gentle way to put it, unless they are pushed, which is a slightly stronger way to put it, or unless they are removed, which is probably the most strongest way to put it. All of those things are going to be options that people are going to do. And, and yeah, what I said to Greta Thunberg and Fridays for the Future when Amnesty International uh, gave them the Ambassador of Conscience Award, is don't let the Trumps and the Bolsonaros of the world uh, take away your childhood, right? Fight and struggle in a way that you celebrate each other, the friendships with each other, uh, sing, dance, laugh, because our mental health is already being challenged 
on a colossal scale as a result of the climate factual realities that are emerging, especially amongst young people. So be very clear. Creating opportunities for young people and others to participate in many different ways, whether it's through arts, through culture, through building a, uh, you know, a recycling facility, whatever, unless we create as much possibilities, even without the support of the state, if necessary, right? That is not only going to help us with the climate solution, but it's also going to help us with developing psychological and mental resilience to deal with how climate impacts are going to continue to intensify the attacks on our mental health. So participation and getting involved, uh, look at the people that are doing bad things by sticking onto fossil fuels and so on, try to shift them with love and compassion, even though they are behaving in horrific ways. But we have to also recognize that the kind of activism we need right now is also to build bridges to the people that are not with us. How do mm -hmm. we get them to understand that our children and their children's lives are equally at risk by not taking action? So those are the kinds of things that we, that we need to see happening. And the good news is we are seeing it happening all over the world. The only question is how do we take it onto a different scale altogether? And I'll conclude by saying that the scale of the climate challenge, the climate crisis, calls for a scale of mobilization never before seen by humanity on this planet. It also means that protests and resistance to injustice will be there as a core part as it's been there before. But part of what we also need to do right now is to co-create and build the solutions from bottom up so that we shame our governments into action. And as we see many parts of the global south where government has no capability to deliver, people are doing it for themselves and doing it not just to do it and say we did it, but doing it away and saying to government, you should have done this. And in the absence of you doing that, we have to do it. So these are the kinds of additional approaches that we need to see in activism. And I feel that it's all happening all over the world. I'm encouraged. The challenge is how do we take it to scale and how do we increase all that's happening by about 10,000 times over, because that's what's needed in terms of scale to get the results that we need. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kobi. Um, one of the one of the reasons why our fellowship is an in residence fellowship in Berlin, and you have spent a couple of months here, is that in addition for the fact that we want the fellows to engage with each other and kind of you know, enrich each other in debates, we also want you to gain new insights, expertise, perspectives on Germany and Europe. And uh, so I want to ask you, what in hindsight was the biggest positive and negative surprise while being here? What you have learned about German or European society, decision-making, uh, politics, you pick it. And uh, I'm very curious to hear it as a German myself. Okay, so on the negative side, I think... Why do you have to start with the negative side, Kumi? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's so obvious, right? And then I'm thinking, okay, let me try and package the positive points in my back of my mind while I'm doing the negative. No, the, the, the main negative thing that stands out for people coming into Europe, who, especially who are intellectually not engaged on thinking about Europe every single day, right? Like I'm in, I'm thinking international and Africa is my main thing, but of course with an international, I'm, uh, Europe is a big player, so it comes up. But, but what, when you hit there, 
right now, what strikes you when you look at Europe as a whole is how actually the move towards European integration and unity, which in a formalistic sense appears to be going well over the last you know, 30 years, that actually in practice it's not. You know? That in fact, we are deeply concerned right now that the, one of the exports from Europe and particularly United States at the moment is right-wing fascism, as we've seen what's happened in, in, in Brazil. So the rise of extremely right-wing conservative sentiment and presence in various European parliaments is something that worries us greatly uh, because whether we like it or not, what happens in Europe has a disproportionate level of influence in various parts of the global south as to what is acceptable levels of democracy and you know what kind of discourse is acceptable and so on. So that's on the negative side. That, that's something that really stands out and, and created a lot of uh, concern. On the positive side for me, uh, I think I've been so impressed by the younger generation in Europe. What I'm seeing is a openness to imagine very, very different realities than from the ones that we have lived in over a long time. I think the level of moral courage, the level of uh, perspectives of how we can build in a different way, different kind of society with greater equity and so on. Uh, I was impressed at how broad based that was, right? That, you know, we have youth movements in Africa as well that are in the climate movement. Some of them obviously are, all of them are operating in a context where there's very different democratic space. So, you know, to organize Fridays for the Future in Germany and versus organizing it in, say, uh, Libya is two very different realities, right? So, but notwithstanding that, I think that uh, there's mobilization that's happening everywhere. And what I have seen, which has impressed me, is that the young people in Europe and the nature of the relationships with young people in Africa and the global south, there's a different vibe to it. There is much more equity. I'm not, I don't want to romanticize it. I'm not saying that there are no north-south tensions within these movements. There are. But it is much better. The, the young, younger people are doing much better in terms of building global solidarity than older activists like myself have been able to achieve. So that's, you know, another very positive thing. Then I'll say one more positive thing, which I am so grateful to the uh, Robert Bosch Academy for, which is one of the reasons uh, I said yes to this very kind offer of the fellowship was I wanted to do more work, not only on rethinking activism, but also one of my solutions to why our activisms can, activism can improve is by fully energizing uh, artivism, bringing arts, culture, and activism together to help us communicate to larger numbers of people more quickly, more creatively, and to reach people's hearts, not only their heads with facts and figures as most of us generally try to do. And so the work that I did with Olafur Eliasson in Berlin and how much I learned from him and the things that have come out of it and how that work is moving forward in so many different ways uh, was another real um, positive thing that I took from my time there. And to see that there are lots of people both in the global north and the global south that are looking to arts and culture as a way to communicate on a much larger basis 
so that more people can get involved in the struggle of our time of our lifetime is something that I'm very positive about. Yeah. So, so see, I had one negative and two positives. Eh? <laughs> <A> duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> What I would like to ask you is, Kumi, every once in a while, one reads a book, a movie one enjoys or a TV show that purely offers you a lot of inspiration or just pure joy sometimes, you know. So I was wondering if you came across a piece of art or entertainment recently that you thought was extremely inspired and would like to share with us. Actually, it's... Uh... Something that is close to me emotionally in terms of family and so on. And it's a song called Stay Shining, right? And Stay Shining was a song of uh, Ricardo, Ricky Rick Mercado, my stepson, mm -hmm. who passed away in, a year ago. And what the song uh, basically, you know, comes out to is basically... Uh, saying that the world is tough, right? Mm -hmm. We have to struggle to survive. But through it all, the best way to survive it is to be optimistic, stay shining, look for solutions. Don't let anything in your day-to-day you know, -day life get you down. And so this notion of stay shining, which is the title of the song, has just been in my heart and soul over the last couple of months, uh, pretty much the last year. And, uh, and that's just inspired me right now to engage in, a, in my activism from that perspective. So tonight, just to give you an example, in the neighborhood where I live in Johannesburg, where this was a really good neighborhood that has just declined and is in serious decay right now, right? And when I started talking to various people, let's get together and do something, part of the message that I used with them was stay shining. I said, listen, we might not make it, we might not improve it, but let's just be op optimistic and let's believe that we have agency to make things better. So for me, Stay Shining mm -hmm. uh, by Ricky Rick is my uh, inspiration and uh, at the moment thank you so much for sharing this with us it's a very personal um and by the way tonight tonight 40 people are meeting that's lovely to start the process of how can we turn around a community that is on its knees uh yeah just in the inner city of and i'm so inspired by the fact uh, you know like people like myself operate at a global level and so on and I've always stayed grassroots connected, but not like engaged in a very active sense. And today I'm able to do that. And I'm very, I'm very excited and grateful for it. Yeah. And I'm staying shining today. So from across <laughs> the ocean, we also wish you stay shining, Kumi. Yes. And, uh, and, we, and we hope that this uh, podcast episode uh, let people stay shining for, for the rest of the day after they have heard it. Because we want to thank you very much, Kumi, for sharing your thoughts and your perspectives as our guinea pig in our very first episode of the podcast. Um, I hope it wasn't too You're painful. <laughs> uh, and, we want to thank, and we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And we hope you all subscribe to our channel on the platforms you're using. Tell your friends about it. 
And if you have any comments, questions, criticism, want to tell Pradnya and myself what we did wrong, feel free to write an email uh, to contact at robertboschacademy.de. And we'll be back next month with our second episode. And then we are going to talk to Yekaterina Schulman, who is a renowned political scientist from Russia and right now in Berlin at the Academy. And we are going to talk to her about the current political situation in her home country, Russia. So thank you very much. And thank you again, Kumi. Thank you. Thank you. Think, debate, inspire. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy, presenting inspiring ideas to address major challenges of our time. Subscribe to our podcast on all platforms.